We are in Revelation 19 today, so turn your Bibles to Revelation 19. We've been traveling verse by verse through this prophecy, and we'll give some definition to that again this morning. Um, there are, and I've expressed to you, there's, there's a lot of revelation that I would never intentionally choose to teach. Like if I was just picking passages out of the Bible, uh, a lot of what we've covered in Revelation, I would not say, oh, yes, that's what I want to teach on a Sunday morning. That sounds fun. Um, that's different than the passage this morning. This is one of my favorite portions of Scripture. And the reason why is it gives me a lot of clarity. It gives me a lot of uh, umbrella statements that I can apply to all of the Word of God in my relationship with Jesus. And this is why it becomes important to me. And my mom, my parents aren't here today. I don't know where they are, but my in-laws aren't either. They're out of town. Um, my mom reminds me, I was raised in the church. You know, she, just, she reminded me last Sunday, and I didn't even know this. Like, we were at church. I, mean, I, I was born in Moses Lake, Washington, the small town. I lived there until I was four, so I was a little kid. But we were there every Sunday, every Wednesday night. I had no idea we went to church on Wednesday night. She's telling me. I can remember as a little kid, I can remember the pews. I can remember coloring on the bulletin with those little half pencils. You guys remember those things? Little communion containers. Like, I, I have images of all that. I remember messing around with my cousins in the children's ministry classrooms, getting in trouble. I have, I'm sure I have that disciplined and marked in my mind. Um, but I can remember as a child my mom teaching and my dad, too, teaching me that prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. You know, that standard prayer. Growing up, every night at dinner, we said grace. It was a Catholic prayer. I remember every night we'd, is that called genuflecting or something like that? But it fought in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I wasn't raised um, ignorant to church or to God. But I was raised in ignorance to this. So Julie, my wife of 22 years now, she's the she is the first person I know that I met that declared to me that she believed that this was the word of God. I remember starting to attend church with her, you know, right, you know, well, anyway, I'm not going to get into our story, but uh, started attending church with her, coming home to her house having lunch with her parents one Sunday, and I remember the words coming out of my mouth to her dad that I don't believe that, the word, that all the word of God is true. And all John said to me was, I do. It wasn't condemning, it was just a statement of faith. Again, this is, this is the journey that the Lord put me on and, and how he was waking me up to the reality of him. Today, my sermon title is Jesus and Prophecy. So the last statement of the passage that we're in today is that the testimony of Jesus, the witnessing of him, the information about him, that it is the breath, the spirit, the very life of all prophecy. And we'll get into a definition of what prophecy is. But it's one of these things, like as I was exposed to the word of God, as I was exposed to the nature and character of the God who created the heavens and the earth, as I was exposed to uh, definition to the sin and darkness that I already knew about and I was already convicted of, but the Word of God gave me definition for what it is and what it was doing in my life and where I was going to be if I died apart from Jesus Christ. It revealed his sacrifice to me, and it took me to this point where, Blake, yes or no? Where are you going to live? 
What are you going to pursue? And again, it's, it's through this document. I've studied this document from Genesis to Revelation for over 20 years. I am not a theologically trained man. I do not have a seminary degree. All I am is a human being who has read this, and my life has been radically transformed and continues to be radically transformed by this document. And it's not a singular document. There's, there's 66 different books in this. Old Testament, New Testament. There's history documents. There are poetry documents, wisdom literature. There is prophecy. There are letters from an individual to churches, letters from an individual to another individual. But in it, we are told that this is the very word of God. We sit in a culture that mocks that statement, that pushes against that statement in different ways. But I'm just standing before you as a person who has given you the testimony, the witness, that is through this document that God has revealed who he is to me. And as we've just sat in Revelation 17 and 18, as we've sat in the rest of this prophecy, there's a whole bunch of pain. How many of you, and I want to see your hands, how many of you have ever praised God that he sent the flood during Noah's time? God, I praise you and I give you thanks that you executed in righteous judgment every single wicked man, wicked woman, and wicked child. And I give you thanks that you preserved eight so that I could be created and so that I could know you. How many of you ever offered God praise for the flood? This is why this passage is so important to me, because let's read these words. Heaven is not praising God for the flood. They are praising God for his future judgment of Babylon, which in 17 and 18 we've sat in. There is this religious system that we live underneath the umbrella of just by being human beings in this world that has always been. And there is an economic and government system that represents Satan and represents those who buy into that lie, buy into that deception, and buy into rebellion against their creator. And God in the future is going to judge that system. And in judgment of that system, human beings are going to lose their lives. And not just their flesh, but they are going to lose themselves in hell away from God for all eternity. We are given the command in Revelation 18 that when that event occurs, to rejoice, to be glad, to praise God for it. Now, at the same time, this document tells me that God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. We were told earlier in Revelation, before the, the final bold judgments are pouring out and all that is occurring there, that God isolates himself in his temple by himself. Everybody else is excluded. Because the judgment is the work of God. And what is it? So we just, we just uh, we're going to get into some of these lyrics, but we just sang about the holiness of God. What does it mean that God is holy? Have you ever just meditated it? What does that statement mean? Old Testament and New Testament both tell us, be holy 
because God is holy. And I look at myself in the mirror and say, good luck, Blake. I can't, Lord. It's impossible. But he promises to give to us his holiness. But what is it that he is holy? When you sit in that definition of what it is that he is holy, it gives you just a brief glimpse of what sin is because sin is the lack of holiness. Sin is missing the mark, missing God's perfect standard of holiness and righteousness is what sin is. And through disobedience, through missing that mark, through not being able to achieve perfection on our own, we're told that the wage, the just reward of our sin is our death, and not just our physical death, but a permanent separation from God. And then the word of God conveys to us from Genesis to Revelation, he has always provided the means of salvation through faith in him. And what is this faith in him? What does it mean to trust God? We just sang about his worthiness. What is it, what is, how costly is the God who created you to you? How precious is he? How valuable is he? How has he demonstrated his worth, not just by declaration, but in action in your own life? And these are, this is the subject matter. These are, heaven is commanding us to praise him for all of his attributes, including his judgment and condemnation of sin. So if you imagine, um, uh, you can, it could be a rope or a cable where you have a bunch of you know, individual strands that are all woven together to form a rope and have that as a, as a picture of all the attributes of God. We like to unravel the rope so we can look at one at a time. God is love, but God is also just. God is king, God is priest, God is kind. God has wrath, God is holy. You know, we look at all these things one at a time, which has its place and it's good, but if we attempt to answer what's going on in our life, what's going on in the world, apart from looking at God as a whole and all of his attributes, we're creating an idol in our hearts, and we're, from that idol, we're, uh, we're offering judgment on the circumstances of our lives and often a judgment against God. I brought up this morning in prayer. Going on in Afghanistan right now, we want to say if a Christian escapes on an airplane from Afghanistan today, praise God. Right? That's good. But if a Christian doesn't get on that plane today and gets executed and murdered by people who hate God and hate anybody who loves God, what do we want to say about that person's life? That's bad. God, where were you? God, why'd you save one and not the other? The Bible declares to us that we are to praise God for all things. And in the name of God is permanent victory. Even if you lose your life in this flesh, you stand in his presence. If you attempt to define why, apart from the nature and character of God, or if you're asking God why while you're wagging your finger at him being his judge, that's going to lead you to a dark place. And there's, we always have to come to God in this confession, God, I don't know. I don't see. I need your mind. I need your understanding. I trust you. I know that you're good. I know that you're patient. 
I praise you, Lord, for your patience. He waited for me. Are you praying for anybody? Is there anybody in your life that does not worship Jesus as their Lord and Savior? If so, you ought to praise God that Jesus has not come back yet so that they can respond to the gospel. All of these subject matters have imports to me in the passage that we're in today in Revelation 19. So let's read these first 10 verses. We're going to have a, a meal afterwards, so my goal was to keep it short today, but in my goal of keeping it short, I'm still always like 50 minutes anyways. You're welcome. That's how my brain works. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, which why the H is missing, I'm not sure. In the, in the Greek, it's just spelling out hallelujah, which means praise Yah, praise God in Hebrew. So it's just written out in the Greek letters. Hallelujah, salvation, glory, honor, power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, his legal decisions, and how he evaluates and responds in judgment. Because he has judged, he has condemned the great harlot who corrupted, who spoiled the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her, talking about Babylon. And again, they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous act, the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, see that you don't do that. I, uh, I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So again, it says we have this direct command here at the end from this angel to worship God and God alone, the one who created the heavens and the earth. And I, I, I tremendously, I have a great amount of gratitude that this is in the Bible because here we have the Apostle John. John. John knows better than to worship any other created thing other than the Almighty God. And here, is it because he's overwhelmed? I have no idea why John falls before this angel, but he begins to worship this angel in some fashion. The angel says, don't do that. And the application for me 
applies to every single man and woman on this planet who we desire to esteem in some way, often there, there comes this bowing down in our minds and our hearts and our lives to people who hold position, and whether it's position in the church, position in government. The declaration that I have in me is worship God and worship God alone. We fellowship with one another. We listen to teachers. We listen to exhortations and motivations, whatever they may be in our lives and in our context, only as far as that person is submitted to Jesus themselves. Paul says, you follow me as I follow the Lord, right? Again, our attention in regards to who God is and our worship of him needs to be based upon these words in this document, not based upon the teachings of men, culture, religious behavior. I wanted to sit in just some of the songs that we sang this morning because over and over, four times here in Revelation, we have this declaration of praise the Lord and there's reasons behind that praise. But the first song that we sang this morning, I raise a hallelujah. You know, again, these are, these are lyrics that we sing, right? And the caution that I have in my heart and the caution that I want you to have in your heart is to make sure as we enter into praise of God that we're not just parroting and repeating words that we see on a wall. I want you, I want you thinking and engaging in your relationship with God. What does it mean to raise a hallelujah? Here we have these direct commands, praise our God and to worship God in this passage. What does it mean to raise a hallelujah to him? Listen to this. In the presence of my enemies, I'm going to raise a hallelujah. Do you have any opposition in your life at all? Spiritual, physical, emotional? Anything that is standing in your way in your, in your relationship with God? in the desires and plans and goals that you may have in your relationship with him? Is there an opposition? Here, this is a declaration to self and a declaration of God. I'm going to raise up praise and gratitude. I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to put my head on the ground intentionally in worship of you. This is what worship means. It means to prostrate yourself. How humiliating of a position is that if the person is not worthy to receive worship? Just think of a name right now that if we had a picture of you with your head on the floor before that individual, if anybody else saw that picture, you would be humiliated to be identified with that person's authority, that person's personality, what that person stands for. You got a picture in your mind? Now vomit on the floor because it's not right. But so often we, we don't have that image of this is what I'm doing, but we'll still give to an individual like that our worship. Our head might not be on the ground before him, but in our minds, in our attitude, our speech, and our actions, we're offering this person praise. We're offering this person gratitude. We're crying out their name for salvation in the face of enemies rather than crying out the name of Jesus. You get what I'm saying? I'll raise hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. Louder than the unbelief. Any of you struggle with faith in God? God, where are you? My timer went off. Did your timer go off? I thought you would have responded by now. 
What do you mean, no? Your promises say yes. Am I the only one that has these toddler moments with God? Do any of you cry out to God? Father, I believe. You're worthy. I trust you. I believe these words. I've got this war inside of me, Lord. It's, I'm fearful. Do you know, this is a great acronym for fear, F-E-A-R. False, right? False expectations that appear real. So it's a great handle for what describes fear in our life. I am meditating on something that is not true. It's a lie. And I have this agitating expectation of this is what's right around the corner. And I'm nervous and I'm fearful and I'm crying out to God and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to fix it myself. But there's, it's only an appearance of reality. It's not true. And we're told in the word of God that what casts fear out? What, what casts fear out of our hearts and our lives? Church? Praising God casts out fear. The perfect love of God casts out fear. One of the prayers that we repetitiously pray here comes from Ephesians 3. And that prayer is that we would know the height and the depth and the width and the length of the love of Christ, which what? Surpasses knowledge. You will never in all of eternity know the height, width, and depth and length of God's love. We will for all eternity grow in the knowledge and experience of that. Heaven will never be boring. But his perfect love casts fear out of his heart. When you know and understand the almighty God who created you is not waiting to take your head off your shoulders, he is waiting for you to put your head on the ground before him and say, I love you and I trust you, God help me. I'm going to raise a hallelujah in my mouth, in my mind, in my heart that's louder than my unbelief. These are always artistic statements. My weapon is a melody. What musician wrote that? I'm not a musician, so I'm not very good at a melody, but it's, it's talking about there's this... The weapon that we have, it's the song, it's the psalm, it's the praise, it's the rejoicing, it's the worship that wells in here that stands against any opposition that's coming into your life. Nothing can remove you from the love of God. Nothing. If you're his, you're his, and you're his forever. If you are feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling pressed down, like the enemy's got you in a cage and he's just smacking you around whenever he wants, it's because you're granting him that power. Give Jesus the power of his love. When you look in the mirror, are there things about you that you don't like? They may be internal things, things about your heart and your mind. They may be external things that you don't like about your physical appearance. They may be about the circumstances that you have going on in your life. Just, I hate this. Let a song well up from within that is sourced in the truth of his word about his nature and his character, his love, his mercy, his attention, his grace, his pain. What do you need to hear from him? You need all the attributes of God, then you soak them in them all. Do you just need to hear one thing from him? 
Again, I, I interact with a lot of people that say, I never hear the voice of God. To me, it's just, it's just it's a choice. I hear the voice of God every time I open this document. These words speak to me. These words speak to my circumstances. Because I am his, I trust that he is dwelling within me. The spirit of the almighty God is within me. I am his temple. He's here. What do you mean you can't hear his voice? Usually it means that what you are hearing isn't what you want to hear. He shouts to you daily. He whispers to you daily. He leads you daily. And if there is a time in your life where God really is silent, he is right there choosing to be silent. And that overwhelming instruction, you just need to go back to the last instruction. Remember, I am with you always. He's here. And again, this, is, this, is, this was what gives me great confidence. This is where I am able to say, Lord, I praise you. What's going on in Afghanistan right now is absolutely miserable, and I don't care what you think the cause of it is. It's miserable. Whether these people are believers or unbelievers, you have life circumstances that are absolute misery. I don't know what you think about a storm when Katrina came through. So many in the church want to say, well, that's a judgment of God. I don't know that. All I know is that there's human beings who live in New Orleans. Our brothers and sisters live there. Enemies of Christ live there. And God, I'm praying that you bless them. I'm praying that you protect them. I'm praying that you provide. I'm praying that you help. I'm praying that you weaken and dissipate the storm. Because my God, the God of the Bible, the God who created the heavens and the earth, does not take pleasure in bringing about his consequential judgment in people's lives. And this is one of the things that helps me understand. Like, here's this proclamation from heaven that we're supposed to rejoice at the fall of Babylon. And I get that because it's this, here's this judgment and here's this doing away with a system that stands in opposition to God and it is gone forever. We are to rejoice in that. But again, where I brought up earlier, earlier on in Revelation before these bold judgments come out where God isolates himself in his temple, I don't think God's in the midst of that, in that time in rejoicing. God gives every single opportunity to every single human being to repent. I don't think so, but God, I hope Hitler's in heaven. I don't think so, but God, I hope Osama bin Laden is in heaven. I can't imagine the misery of eternal hell. It break, I, we had a phone call from our daughter last night about one of her friends who is drowning in sin. God save her. It's not God get her. Get what you deserve, idiot. God help her. Give her that clarity that you gave to the prodigal as he wakes up in his slop and his filth. That clarity that you gave to me. We were, we were talking about this morning. I have no idea why I have faith in God and others don't. 
It's not because of me. And we're, I think one of the next songs we sing about, who am I? Nobody. Other than what he defines me to be. And God's called me, and he's chosen me, and he's declared that I am his. I have so much comfort in that. And I know that the heart that he has for me is the heart that he has for every single human being. But if a human being doesn't bend the knee in worship of God, that the horror of that thought, it's overwhelming to me. Um, but I'm sitting in a passage that, that tells me, that commands me to rejoice and worship God for the judgment of sin. So I will. Even if I don't understand God, I trust you. And here's the confidence of my faith. I know the day that I stand before God face to face, I'm never going to tell God that you did something wrong. God, that person that's in hell that you have cast out, you judge that one wrong. I will never say that to God. I have this confidence that the word of God gives to me that I will be singing his praises for all eternity. There's this idea that, uh, you know, that when God wipes away all the tears that, you know, if you have a family member who's passed away that doesn't know the name of Christ, they did not bend the knee in faith of Jesus Christ, and you believe that their eternal state is eternal separation from hell, that God's going to, like, wipe that person out of your memory because how can you abide in God's presence for all eternity knowing that you love this person that is abiding for all eternity away from God's presence? We comfort ourselves by saying, well, God's just going to remove that person out of our minds for eternity. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible tells us that before Jesus, before the Lamb, and before the angels, that their torment goes on forever and ever. And it's good, it's compassionate, it's righteous, it's just, it's kind, it's compassionate. It's peace. Do you trust God? I have to remind myself about who he is every day. This is what, this is what faith is. God, well up great faith within me. I don't understand. I have limited knowledge. But I know and I believe and I trust that you are who you declare yourself to be. I will worship you. The same scene that we just read through, I will join in this chorus forever and ever. This is future. My understanding of the Bible is that I'm going to be present in heaven at this time, worshiping God with these voices. I have confidence in that. And the reason why I have confidence in that, because the next statement that talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. What does it say? Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent, all-powerful, almighty, he reigns as king. Let us be glad and rejoice. It's literally, let us rejoice and rejoice exceedingly and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. What's the church called today? The bride of Christ. Uses this imagery. God, throughout his word, uses human relationships to give to us a snapshot and an understanding, an image of what our relationship with him is like. 
And one of those intimate relationships between a man who loves a woman that are not yet married. What are they anticipating? How long today? Luke and Kate are getting married today. They are being joined in the name of Jesus till death do they part as husband and wife. How long have they been looking forward to that day? Six months, year. How long has Jesus been looking forward to this day? So this is, it's called the marriage supper of the lamb, the wife, no longer the bride, but the lamb's wife. She's made herself ready, and we'll get into that description in a minute, but it's at this point, it's no longer the church as the bride of Christ. The wedding has already occurred, so as you sit in the timing of the rapture, when is it? I have my opinions, you have your opinions. At some point prior to this, Jesus is going to take his bride to himself, and there is going to be a heavenly ceremony, whatever that looks like. And here's, here's this picture, and here's this illustration of a wedding feast. But it gives this idea, the, the wife, the bride, has made herself ready. So a couple of times, especially in Matthew, Jesus uses a wedding feast to teach a parable, which is to lay down a truth alongside of an illustration to help us understand. So one of those in this parable, he's likening the kingdom of heaven for a wedding feast where everybody's been invited. And those who have been invited offer a bunch of excuses of why they don't want to come to the wedding. So in this, Jesus gives the illustration, fine, don't come. But I'm going to send my servants out into the highways and the byways and invite everybody to come in. And again, it's this picture where we invite everybody to come to Jesus. And people come, but it says they're clothed in some wedding garments. And in that teaching that Jesus gives, he says that the master, he comes and he's, he's at the wedding feast and he finds somebody without a wedding garment on. He says, hey, where's your wedding garment? I don't know. Well, in this, it's cast him out in the fire where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What? Super weird until you sit in the revelation here. Because what is the wife clothed in? Gives us this statement that the righteous acts of the saints are the fine linen that the wife is clothed in. What is the garment that's been referred to all throughout Revelation? All throughout the word of God. We are to take off all that is not God and we are to put on all that he is. But again, it gives this statement that she is given. She's given this garment. You are given the holiness of God. You are given the righteousness of God. So here it's not talking about, you know, the righteous acts of the saints of here's all your good works. It's here is the perfect grace of God given to each one of us. And as we sat in 17 and 18, it's, it, the imagery in regards to harlotry and prostitution is used over and over again. I've just been sitting in this meditation, especially with Rahab. So you go back to Joshua as God is bringing the nation of Israel into the promised land. There's this woman who is called Rahab the harlot in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I've just... I've, it's one a book that I listened to and just where we are in Revelation, just sitting in that imagery, like what was her life like? How horrific 
was Rahab's daily life. How stained was she? How filthy was she? But the New Testament, well, Old Testament 1, we have this testimony that she believed in God. She believed in the God of the nation of Israel. And she and her family were preserved from the judgment of God, right? We have later on in Joshua, we see that Rahab is, becomes a part of the nation of Israel. We don't see until later on. I don't remember. She's the grandma or great-grandma of King David. So you go sit in the New Testament. Rahab, this prostitute, this harlot, is intentionally chosen redeemed, washed, cleaned, and placed into the lineage of our God. Now, if that doesn't preach the love of God, and again, I, I got to look at myself in the mirror, and I want to condemn Harlot for her life, and I got to look at my own mind, and my own heart, and my own actions. And God, look at the garments and the identity that you have removed from me, and look what you've clothed me in. You're only, only an act of your grace. It's marriage supper of the lamb. When you sit in images of it, usually it's this, you know, infinite banquet table that's all set up like Victorian era. And I, what, what is that day going to be like? What's on the menu? Pork? Beef? Chicken? I don't know. And the eternal heaven, the new heaven, new Jerusalem, I don't think that there's going to be meat. I don't think there's going to be any death. It's not what the Word of God declares to us. But at this time, we're told that when Jesus comes, as we're going to read next week, and he sets up shop as king, that he is going to rule on this planet with a rod of iron. We're told at the end of Ezekiel, there's a description of this temple that we believe is the millennial temple. And part of that millennial temple, our understanding, there's sacrifices that are going on. There are animal sacrifices as you have the Messiah ruling in person for a thousand years. What's going on there? I don't know. I think it's to give the imagery in regards to the culture of that time that they're going to be able to, to look back at the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus, that they're going to have that imagery, just like that imagery provided a future perspective in the Old Testament. That's how I understand it. So at the marriage supper of the Lamb, animals are still dying. So there may be meat on the menu, but I doubt it. Who's going to be at your table? You know, is it a bunch of round tables? Is it just one massive room? Are there different layers? How close are you to Jesus? I don't know. Imagine a billion plus human beings redeemed from sin and from death. What we're doing this afternoon is just a foretaste. I love sitting down and eating with people. I like going to coffee. I like sitting across the table, sharing a meal, good food, talking about the Lord, talking about life. It's how we get to know each other. We're going to have an incredible fellowship at this, but incredible fellowship for all eternity. How often are we going to gather around a table? And again, when it comes to a wedding celebration, culturally, this is the largest celebration of the day. This is, this is big deal. All the stops, 
or there are no stops, whatever. I mean, it's, it's the biggest celebration in communities where it's just, it's just a glorious time as a community to celebrate a wedding. And the New Testament communicates to us that today that we are being preserved as a chaste virgin waiting for that day to be presented clean in his righteousness because of his grace for this future day. We are being held for it. But there's this idea that here it says his wife has made herself ready. So there's another parable in Matthew chapter 25 as Jesus is talking about his coming and communicating to all believers that you need to be watchful and that you need to be ready for his return. He uses a parable teaching about a wedding. Here's five wise virgins and here's five foolish. The five wise, they prepared they made themselves ready. That's this picture that's being given. And it's not that you save yourself, but it's that you're engaging in that relationship. You're reading. You're watching. You're being ready. You're trusting. You're processing through all of life's experiences with your Savior, not apart from him. And he is the one who is going to preserve you and keep you and Jesus is the one that is going to present you to himself perfectly clean adorned in his righteousness and his grace what a statement and we're going to save prophecy till next time because otherwise we're going to be here a long time because one of my favorite sentences in the bible genesis to revelation the testimony of Jesus the witnessing of him is the very breath, it's the very life, it is the very spirit of the word of God, all of it. And somebody wants to say, well, how do you see Jesus in the sacrificial system of Leviticus all over the place? He is the source of this document, amen? And as the source of this document, every jot, every tittle, every I, every cross T, Every sentence is revealing him to us. The good, the bad, the ugly, things that we want to avoid, and things about him that cause us to just sprint to his throne of grace. So Lord, as we turn our minds and our hearts away from sitting at your feet, listening to your words, meditating on what it is that you've preserved for us. We turn our hearts to you intentionally, Lord, recognizing that you are the Lord God Almighty. You are the one who has created the heavens and the earth, and we believe in you, not just that you exist, but we believe the revelation that you've given to us about yourself. We believe that you've created, I believe that you've created me. I believe that you know me and that you see me and that you love me and that you pursue me, that you protect me, that you provide for me. And I come to you in that confession. I come to you in that confession, Lord, that when I look at you and I look at me and I'm supposed to image you, Lord, I see all these places where I miss 
I see the sin, I see the lack, I, I feel this war and this conflict that's within me. And with Paul and with my other brothers and sisters, I turn to you through faith in Jesus. I believe, Jesus, that on that day, on that cross, that everything that I owe you, that you paid for. I believe that you died the death that I deserve. And I believe that through your resurrection, through faith in you, Lord, that you have given to me by grace your life. And I'm asking you, Lord, that you continually reveal yourself to me. Let me see you. Let me hear you. Let me know you. Let me rejoice in the things that you tell me to rejoice in. Let me turn away from all that you tell me to flee from. ask that you hold my hand as I walk alongside of you, Lord. If I need to be carried, I ask that you pick me up and carry me. ask that you help me in my areas of life where I don't trust you, Lord. I thank you that I have that knowledge that there's coming a day in the future that you're going to look at me and out of your mouth are going to come the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And not through my self-effort, Lord, but because of what you've done in me, how you've transformed me. So with my brothers and sisters right now, Lord, in mind, in heart, and in body, I put my head on the floor before you in humble worship because you were worthy. I love you. I care about you. I want you. And for all those, Lord, that, are, that don't know yet, for those who are drowning, Lord, for those who mock, those who scorn, those who are in open rebellion against you, Forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. Get them with your grace and your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.